0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. <laughs> Today on The Public Morality, Amy Traub from the Demos Institute in New York City joins us to discuss the 20th anniversary of welfare reform. And after that, Professor Joseph Crespino from Emory University in Atlanta will discuss the possible political realignment in the South. That's coming up on The Public morality. Hello, I'm Byron Williams. It's been 20 years since President Bill Clinton signed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, commonly referred as welfare reform. The legislation transformed an open-ended cash assistance program to a finite program that attached benefits to those in need to work, subsidized by federal grants applied to the state. Along with cash assistance contributed by the states, it was designed to change welfare as we know it. But after 20 years, where does this legislation stand? Did it meet the original goals? Or is welfare reform today in dire need of reform? To answer these questions and more is Amy Traub. Traub serves as a senior policy analyst at the Demos Institute located in New York City. Amy Traub, welcome back to The Public Morality.
1: Thank you, Byron. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. Why don't we begin uh, with you providing the history of the Responsibility, Work, Opportunity Reconciliation Act, uh, commonly known as welfare reform, that was recently signed into law some 20 years ago by President Clinton.
1: So the legislation was signed into law on August 22, 1996. And the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act really ended the traditional welfare system that originally came out of the New Deal called Aid to Families with Dependent Children. Under that previous system, very poor Americans were entitled, and it was an entitlement, to receive financial support from the federal government. The replacement was Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, TANF. And the new system, the one we have now, has four basic features. The first is a great deal of flexibility for the states. Um, combined with that, though, is the funding for the program. It has fixed block grant funding from the federal government. So that means states get their yearly payments to run the program, and then that's it. In practice, this ends up limiting the number of families who can enroll. Another important feature, and this is what a lot of people associate with welfare reform, is the narrowly defined work requirements. To get benefits, families have to be working or engaged in job training. And finally, time limits. There's a lifetime limit of five years on receipt of federally funded cash assistance. And so that's the system we have now. And I would note that the law wasn't just Bill Clinton's brainchild. We associate it with Clinton. His original plan for welfare reform included a job guarantee for adults coming off welfare, a further increase in the earned income tax credit, and efforts to strengthen state child support systems. But remember that in 1994, Republicans led by Newt Gingrich swept into the House of Representatives. And in the course of hammering out the legislation and compromising with the Republican House of Representatives, the legislation welfare reform was made less supportive than Bill Clinton's original vision and more punitive. At the same time, we don't want to let Bill Clinton off the hook because he ultimately signed it, and some people in his administration were not happy with that. Three officials from the Department of Health and Human Services ended up resigning in protest of the bill.
0: Was it one of those? uh, The husband of Marion Wright Edelman?
1: Yes, yes, Peter Edelman. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I guess, I guess, depending on um, the 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 platform uh, where one stands, there have been uh, myriad. Articles written about uh, the 20th anniversary of welfare reform and depending on who's writing that piece, it's either uh, a somewhat of a success or an abject failure. Wh- where in your view does, does does welfare reform currently stand in your perspective
1: Yeah well, I think whether it's a success or a failure really depends on what your goals are for the system. If the goal is to get people off the welfare rules, And it was a huge success, and it still is, because the welfare rolls plummeted. They fell by half, from 12.6 million people in 1996 to 6.3 million in 2000. And those numbers have remained very low, even through the Great Recession. But, of course, getting people off welfare isn't the same thing as really bringing families out of poverty. And our current TANF system does not reach a lot of poor families. Today, just 23 percent of all families with children living in poverty receive welfare, according to um, the statistics are from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. At the same time, cash assistance benefit levels for families who do qualify and do receive benefits are very low. It gets you to less than half of the federal poverty line. So families receiving TANF funds still have difficulty meeting basic needs. Another concern is that TANF has largely failed to respond to increases in need, um, especially during the Great Recession. So we have a safety net, but it's not catching a lot of people. At the end, um, as the number of unemployed Americans doubled across the country with the Great Recession, the number of households receiving cash assistance went up only, only modestly, really, at that time. And then finally, the focus, the key focus of welfare reform on people needing to take a job, any job, regardless of the wages or the working conditions, that really helped to promote the low-wage economy that we see today, where so many Americans are working at jobs that don't really pay enough to live on because they have no other alternative and nowhere else to turn.
0: Uh, I know a lot of people, most reasonable people, would, would say that, you know, Welfare to work, that sounds reasonable, but you just touched on, for your last point you really touched on something. Just welfare to work in and of itself is, is more complicated than, than what it sounds, is it not?
1: Yeah, it is more complicated because the stereotype of welfare recipients, depending on public benefits year after year, really wasn't accurate. Even w- under the old system, more than 40% of AFDC recipients left the program in less than two years under the old system. Remember that many people receiving AFDC back then and TANF now are single mothers with small children. Often they'd get jobs when their children started kindergarten or first grade. So welfare reform succeeded in getting more single mothers into the workforce, taking low-paying jobs and then scrambling to find childcare however they could. And often that's in environments that are not enriching or educational and sometimes not even safe for the children if we focused on providing quality childcare to poor families and frankly more than poor families a lot of middle class families really could could use some help in affording childcare that might be equally or more successful in getting people into the labor force if we raised the minimum wage and guaranteed work to everyone who wanted it that would also get people not just off welfare but really out of poverty
0: now now did you accept the premise or would it even be fair to suggest that um... Well, the, the welfare reform, um, as, as it's currently structured, um, has three sort of competing goals, which were um, securing benefits for needy children, providing incentives to induce a desired outcome, if you will, and keeping public, public costs within acceptable bounds. Is, is those a fa- are those fair assessments?
1: Yeah, I would say that's, that's one way of looking at it. Those are, those are certainly three goals that, that people have articulated.
0: Uh, but, but now, that also gets a little more complicated, uh, as you touched on um, earlier about the state flexibility piece. So how does that also uh, play into those three competing goals?
1: Yes, well, the states have different priorities. You would hope that every state, for example, cares about adequate benefits for needy children. Yet, there's unfortunately a lot of evidence to the contrary. We see states like Michigan, for example, which spends nearly $100 million a year for its TANF money, so out of that that federal pot of money, which is limited, uh, on college scholarships, which aren't targeted at low-income students. So college can be a great way to enable people to lift themselves out of poverty, but an untargeted scholarship program um, really gets you pretty far from the original idea, certainly of securing an adequate uh, and decent living for for needy children states have so much flexibility and really are not held accountable for providing a safety net or for setting up effective work programs.
0: talking with Amy Traub of the Demos Institute um, I want to go back uh, touch you just mentioned about about that state flexibility and earlier you mentioned about the, the, the excuse me the political piece with uh, Republicans taking over the Congress during uh, Bill Clinton's era. Um, you had some of that politics when uh, with President Obama. Did you not? With with um, he was letting states off the hook, or I, um, I forgot the actual criticism, but he was uh, taking work requirement off off the table. That was sort of the criticism levied toward him. So my point is that none of this is just strict a strict public policy issue. It's just there's always this cloud of politics that surrounds welfare reform.
1: That's right. Um, I will say that what Obama was doing was making it easier for households that are receiving public benefits, that are receiving TANF, to actually pursue a college education. And that was one of the concerns about the original system was that uh, you could do, I believe, a year of job training, and that was it. And, And what Obama did was give states some flexibility to say, you know what, instead of just cycling out of, of low-wage jobs that really will never lift you out of poverty, if people want to pursue a college education and really get a degree that's going to enable them to to really lift their families up, that that's a benefit that, that the public can get behind as well.
0: Um, all right. I want to go back to those um, three basic points that I taught, those competing interests, if you will, and I'd like to have you sort of hammer away at where where we are with each one of those, if you, if you would. Um, Securing adequate benefits for needy children. Where are we with that? I know you. I know it's fifty competing policies, over here, but where yeah. are we um, with that?
1: Well, we we do see the national numbers, and and the picture they paint is not a pretty one. Fifteen point three million children in the U.S. lived in food insecure households in twenty fourteen. About one in five children lived in households below the poverty line, and eleven percent of children under age ten lives in deep poverty which is a, an annual income of $9,276 for a family of three. That's, that's really uh, very low income. And that number has been rising even as social scientists are uncovering new data about the ways that growing up with this kind of deprivation really has lifelong effects on children, even if they have better circumstances and opportunities late in life. So uh, giving a letter grade, uh, I do not think you can give a good grade to securing adequate benefits for needy children.
0: How about providing benefits that induce a desired behavior?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it it looks different when you're looking at that, because after welfare reform was signed into law, single mothers streamed into the workforce. Mm -hmm. It was the 1990s, and the economy was booming at that time. There were jobs available really for just about everyone. When the recession of the early 2000s hit, and even more when the Great recession, recession hit starting in 2008, lots of people couldn't find work. At the same time, the states had made it, in some states more than others, but, but many of them had made it so difficult to qualify for TANF that families in need also didn't join the welfare rolls. So the problem is less about inducing people to work than ensuring that there are jobs available. And, of course, in the case of parents of young children, making sure that there is affordable, quality child care, which, which often there's not.
0: And how about um, keeping uh, public costs within acceptable limits? I guess the question is there, what is acceptable? So.
1: Yeah, well, that, that is always a political question, right? Uh, you frame things in one way, and people are for it, and it's framed slightly differently uh, politically, and people are against it. Um I think the thing to keep in mind is that welfare reform ultimately did not save money. And that's partly because cash assistance is not the only way that we support poor Americans. We offer tax credits to parents and to low-income workers. We have Medicaid, SNAP, which is food stamps. We have free breakfasts and lunches to children in school. And people who are out of work qualify for unemployment insurance or perhaps disability benefits. And it's really these programs that have helped contribute to um, somewhat of a decline in child poverty, which we've seen. Um, but in terms of costs, just getting stricter about welfare has not been a cost saver.
0: You, you know, I, I was, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, uh, last year, uh, Kansas Governor Sam Braubach, Brownback excuse me, uh, signed a bill in the law where they really curtailed what you could spend with, your, uh, with one's public assistance. Now, I, I understand uh, maybe alcohol, alcoholic beverages, but then went the gambling venues, tattoos, massages, body piercing—you uh, couldn't go to a spa or nail salon. You couldn't go to um, you couldn't go to a theater or, or cruise cruise ships. I mean, I mean the cash benefit was four hundred dollars a month, and you could only you could only debit twenty five dollars a day. So. What kind of, of policy, what does this policy really say? I mean, that's, I find it hard to believe that's really a public policy toward that public good that we're talking about um, with public costs. So what does this policy really say to you?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think this, really nar- this narrative really gets at another goal, which is demonizing the poor and insisting that it's something about an individual's personal behavior, too many tattoo parlors or too many spas, that's causing poverty. Rather than it being a part of how our capitalist economy and the society, our society are structured, that is uh, keeping people in poverty.
0: And, and that certainly goes back, and that's a very old narrative. That goes back to the infamous Ronald Reagan welfare queen that people believed that there was someone in Chicago in mink coats with multiple um, uh, aliases receiving um, six figure government assistance salaries. And we, and, we, it, and we still believe that to some degree, don't we?
1: I, I think it's a really deeply rooted stereotype. And, you know, it reminds us of the extent also to which welfare reform was sold on the basis of, of really racialized stereotypes. This was a fictional character of a welfare queen that preyed on resentment against struggling African-American families, white resentment. And with welfare reform, Clinton played on these stereotypes as well rather than challenging them. The majority of AFDC recipients at the time um, and always were were white, but the image promoted was of a lazy black or Latina woman, dependent on government handouts and having lots of children. And researchers have found that whites with more racially biased feelings towards Black Americans were the people who were most likely to favor welfare reform at the time. And I think that really, you know, should should make us all question kind of the roots of, of these policies and how much that racial resentment has played a role in demonizing the poor and in pursuing policies that, that frankly, are, are not effective at uh, reducing poverty or at saving the public money.
0: You know, you know um, I, what I hear you saying, Amy, uh, is that um, you can, there can really be no substantive discussion about welfare reform. That does not include a discussion about our attitudes toward uh, poverty and race.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: And and because states have a role, it's it's quite possible that we will always in some form have 50 different versions of welfare reform. But what should be the commonalities uh, present regardless of what what the state implements?
1: I think federal government could really do a better job of holding states accountable for creating a safety net that actually supports the poor poor families who need it. But I think a lot of people also are thinking bigger than just welfare in terms of supporting poor families. What about a public jobs program that would guarantee work to anyone who wants it? There's really a lot that needs to be done in our communities from fixing bridges and roads and, and building libraries and schools to taking care of our elderly and our young children. And we've seen that the market really isn't fully addressing these needs because there's just not enough profit to be made. So if we had a public jobs program, uh, it could pay a living wage, it could target communities where the needs really are highest, and places where they're the deepest and most persistent pockets of joblessness. And I was noticing that the the movement for black lives called for a policy along these lines in their economic justice platform and and pointed out that for nearly 70 years, black Americans have had twice the unemployment rate of white people in the U.S., and that's even when the economy is strong. It's still twice as much. Um, So they are highlighting how public jobs really could benefit the black community, but really they could benefit americans from all backgrounds and and that could be a real way to address poverty in this country and to encourage work of course
0: um i know i'm asking you to speculate but but we have been i know i've been writing about it and and others have been talking about extensively i've been writing about infrastructure and some of the things you talked about for i know at least a decade why has that um just been a non-starter do you do you think
1: bias in this country towards believing that markets can solve all of our problems and really wanting to shy away from public investment and government investment. But it isn't working too well for us. And I think this is a time when we need to take a second look at, um, at making some of these investments, both in infrastructure and in, in the kind of care work that um, is not being addressed by the market.
0: Um. Are you, what, what, if you had the crystal ball, what, what trajectory would you say we're on um, with welfare reform?
1: It's a good question. It's <laughs> interesting because um, none of the candidates have, have spoken to that a lot. Even in this very contested Democratic primary when Bernie Sanders um, had a lot of really bold ideas for remaking the country, he did not have a lot to say about his vision for welfare reform. Hillary Clinton has said that she thinks it's time to, to rethink some of her husband's legacy around this issue, but she has not gotten a great deal into the specifics. So it's, it's difficult to say where we're going, and, and what Donald Trump would do certainly um, would be anyone's guess. <laughs>
0: right. I, I would not—, I would not um... Ask you on, on the public rally to, to speculate that far. Just just <laughs> Amy Trob from the Demos Institute. I am uh, grateful, thankful for having you back uh, on the public rally today.
1: I, I enjoyed it very much. And if your listeners are interested in our work, they can go online at demos d e m o s dot org. Thank you.
0: Thank you. That was Amy Traub of the Demos Institute. Coming up, a discussion about a potential political realignment in the South with history professor Joseph Crespino. In recent years, when one spoke of the solid South, it was a euphemism for a region that solidly voted for Republican presidential candidates. But this nearly 50-year phenomenon may be going through a structural shift. States once thought to be out of reach may now be competitive for Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton. To discuss this change is Professor Joseph Crespino. Professor Crespino is the Jimmy Carter professor of 20th century American political history and Southern history since Reconstruction at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He recently penned an op-ed in the New York Times on this very subject. Professor Joseph Crespino, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. Um, why don't we begin with the 1948 uh, presidential election as our point of demarcation uh, for where we are today. Uh, that was the race uh, between uh, Harry Truman and Thomas Dewey, but there was a third-party entry as well. Why don't you tell us about that?
2: Well, there were actually four parties in 1948. The third party, depending on who you ask, would have been the Dixiecrats candidate, uh, Strom Thurmond. And of course, Henry Wallace ran uh, also as a progressive party candidate. And Thurmond ran in 1948 as part of a a group of Southern dissidents who had been uh, upset with Harry Truman's civil rights policies that he had introduced earlier in 1948. But they were part of. A, they represented a group of uh, Southerners who had been uh, slowly peeling off from the party in reaction to what they felt like were uh, the growth of the federal state and uh, the, that had come out of the New Deal, and also for the Roosevelts' uh, increasingly friendly policies towards Black Americans.
0: Mm. And and, um, and part of that, um, uh, President Truman uh, desegregated the army. That was part of their complaint, was it not?
2: Yes, that's right. So the, there was an executive order. There were two things, really, that that tangible things that that Harry Truman did in 1947 and 48. One thing was the he established a, a committee to study the problem of civil rights in the South, and this was in reaction to a series of incidents of racial violence that had taken place, many of them against uh, veterans, black veterans, in the years following the end of the of the Second World War. And so that commission came out with a study to the problem uh, of what should the federal government do about civil rights. And then he issued the executive order to desegregate the military.
0: Hmm. Now, 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 prior to this period, uh, Southern Democrats were uh, pretty much a solid voting block uh, for, for, Demo- for, for the Democratic Party, is
2: it? That's right. That's right. I mean, the, the, the term the Solid South referred to the fact that since the, early in the 19th century, the southern states had voted consistently for the Democratic Party, the party of Jefferson, the party of Jackson, the party of, of individual rights, states' rights, of, of agrarianism, these kinds of principles.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, now in, in your view, what were the, some of the um, large implications of Thurman's entry into the race, and not only at the race itself, but maybe you know, following the race?
2: Well there were implications in 1948 that uh you know I mean the the uh, you know the Dixiecrats peeling off very very nearly cost the Democrats the election and that was the great concern that a third party bolt would uh deprive uh the the votes that that Harry Truman needed and it would lead to the election of the of the Republican candidate Dewey in the end that didn't happen there was such a big Majority of uh, folks who who were you know uh, in the Democratic fold that that you that the the Democrats could lose the South and still win the election. Of course, it was an extremely close election, hmm. but the broader implications historically is that in '48 this was the first time that uh, white South white Southerners had left the party, and it began a process again it began a period where the white majority of the american south uh comes comes into play and and both parties start competing for votes in the uh, in this in this region that had formerly been a stronghold of just one
0: party now if we 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 we'll just uh if we move forward um you, you have Thurman in 48 sort of that that point of demarcation then 1963, that's the emergence of George Wallace, and, and, and talk about his impact into this process, if you will. Right. So Wallace was
2: uh, inaugurated as, as, as governor of Alabama in 1963. He had run on a very stringent uh, segregationist platform. He gave a very bellicose inaugural address in which he pledged segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And then in the, ni- in, the, in the summer of 1964, in the midst of an intense national debate over the Civil Rights Act that year, Wallace decides he will run uh, in the presidential primaries in a number of, of northern uh, and midwestern states. And so he runs in the Democratic primary in Indiana and in uh, uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Um, and uh in other and in other states and he um and he does surprisingly well surprisingly well among white working class voters um, many of them union members who are resentful of kind of union mandates to to desegregate industries and neighborhoods and things outside the south and so he shows for the first time in 1964 the potential of this kind of cross regional uh reaction against the, the civil rights changes that were taking place in the country.
0: And, and those uh, states that you ran in, saying like you mentioned, in Indiana and so forth, uh, was it uh, due largely to the civil rights legislation, and, or were there some other concerns at the time?
2: Well, I mean, well, I mean, certainly in 1964, the civil rights was the central issue, uh, and that was unconcerned. But Wallace, over the 60s, I mean, he ran for president four times, and in all of his campaigns, you know, over the course of those campaigns, he would take what was initially this, this this visceral reaction against civil rights and turn it into a broader criticism of liberalism broadly construed, and um, and and you know, pointy-headed, elite liberals who were out of touch with the common man. This was the this was the political, you know, platform of George
0: Wallace. You said, I remember uh, listening to one of his speeches. I think he said a carpet bag in the scallywagon. He, he, had, he, had, he had some great terms. Right.
2: Uh, well, he was, a, you know, I mean, he would go into these, into these venues and they would be, you know, like the Trump rallies we've seen of more recent vintage, they would be uh, filled with supporters and they would be filled with protesters, too. And so you would have a very volatile mix of people there. And, and he would, you know, fire up his own people by mocking and calling out um, the protesters. So what we've seen in Trump rallies are really a, uh, a, 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 an odd, odd kind of replaying of, of George Wallace rallies of, the, of 1968 and, and, and other years.
0: And, and as you wrote um, in a wonderful piece uh, in the New York Times, um, what was Barry Goldwater's role in, 19, in the 1964 rela- election as it related to this phenomenon that we're talking about today?
2: Well, Goldwater uh, was you know, the senator from Arizona who had been kind of the rising star in the Republican Party as a kind of a spokesman for kind of principled conservatism through the 1950s. And Goldwater kind of represented the, the dilemma that the Republicans faced as they were trying to recruit white Southerners, uh, white Southern Democrats to their party. Goldwater and others wanted to present the the case for going after the, the Southern voters as going after voters who were, um, you know, part of a region that the economy was being transformed. They were white-collar professional folks working in industries, living in cities and in suburbs like Atlanta, and that these people would naturally identify with the fiscal and social conservatism of the Republican Party. But what was also happening at the time, of course, was the civil rights movement. And and and, and the reaction against that also made uh, the kind of ideological conservatism of the Republicans very, very attractive. So Goldwater, classically in 1964, votes against uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And he does so uh, on on these as a kind, he sees it as a kind of, announces it as a kind of, you know expansion of federal authority that is unconstitutional and that kind of thing hmm. uh, but it it wins him enormous support among the south the states of the deep south who don't care why he voted against it they just they they were opposed to it and so you know Goldwater was a politician, and I think we have to remember that you know he was a politician who was running for president and 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 people who are running for president don't uh, aren't oftentimes too particular about who's voting for them. They just need votes. And certainly that was the case for Goldwater in 64.
0: And, and as I recall, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, didn't Goldwater uh, later um, uh, regret t- making that vote or uh, say something to that? To that uh...
2: Well, I don't think that he ever uh, – it's not so much that he repudiated that vote. I mean, Goldwater had voted for uh, civil rights bills prior to 1964 he voted in favor of voting rights a uh, civil rights Acts in 19 um, 57 and in 1960 which had largely involved voting rights what what he objected to in the 64 legislation were the expansions of Cong- expansions of powers of congress to regulate interstate trade largely around Title II of the 64 Act, and he saw this as an expansion of federal authority that affected private business. And that was the nature of his remarks about it, uh, And uh, that, that there was a, a kind of con- a principled conservative opposition to the legislation. Um, but it was also inevitably probably uh, you know, a, a, an eye cast towards the politics of 1964 and the need, if he was going to win the election, to to win those Southern voters.
0: So we're talking with uh, Professor Joseph Crespino of Emory history professor at Emory University, uh, and then um, you have the Southern Strategy. What was it, and how successful was it?
2: Well, the Southern Strategy—it means many different things to many different people. But I think it's—I think historically, it's best to understand it in the terms that I've been talking about it. Uh, And and that is this this debate that's going on within the Republican Party about um, how do you bring in uh, white Southern conservative Democrats into a party that is trying, that the conservative activists in the Republican Party are trying to shift the party to the right. They want to make an American political system in which you have, like the British system, in which you have a conservative party and you have a liberal party. And you didn't have that in the Republican Party. In 1964, there were still moderate Republicans. There were still liberal Republicans from the Northeast. Jacob Javits.
0: So I was thinking about Clifford uh,
2: Case. Yeah. yeah. So those were, you know, and they wanted those people out. They wanted to push those people out into the Democratic Party, and they wanted to bring in conservative Southern Democrats into the Republican Party, and um, and so that that was that's broadly construed the Southern strategy, um, and. You know, depending on who you asked, I mean, it, it, Republicans like Barry Goldwater would say they were going after, uh, you know, these kind of conservative uh, white-collar folks of the new Southern economy. Um, critics of it would say they're going after the Dixiecrats. They're going after the former supporters of Strom, Thurmond, and 48. And in fact, they were going after both. And, um, and they needed both if they were going to pull off this, what, you know, in retrospect, is one of the biggest transformations of political, you know, partisan loyalties in American history.
0: And give us a time frame for when this southern of strategy sort of takes hold, if you will.
2: Well, I mean, it starts. You know, sixty-four is a, is a good turning point, but it continues through the election of sixty-eight, when um, Strom Thurmond, you know, switches party in sixty-four and sixty-eight. And he helps Richard Nixon when um, important states of the South and helps. Him kind of head off the challenge that George Wallace poses in 1968 in running for a third-party candidate, and then in the end of the 1970s and 80s, Ronald Reagan kind of picks up on this this kind of George Wallace constituency, this constituency of work, white working-class voters in the South and outside of the South um, who were resentful of you know uh, of liberalism writ large, and and who in the 60s were resentful of civil rights but increasingly come to resent other broader liberal changes. And so uh, uh, Reagan continues that, and those kind of Reagan Democrats are a key part of Reagan's successful coalition in the
0: 1980s. And and on top of that that, that aspect of the Southern strategy, doesn't Ronald Reagan actually expand that coalition? I'm thinking more like evangelicals, if you will.
2: Right, so so that's an important point as well, because one of the things that and there's some overlap here, but it's it is also there's there are distinctions that one can make between the old Wallace constituency of the 1960s, and the voters that the Republican Party increasingly courts, but in the 1970s, in uh, evangelical and fundamentalist voters, many of the, some of them had not really been political before the 1970s, owing in part to kind of theologies of fundamentalism and and evangelicalism that's not so concerned about the world today, concerned about the, the here and after and that sort of thing. But by the 1970s are successfully kind of politicized by Republican activists in opposition to a range of liberal social, you know, social issues, whether it was gay rights or women's rights or abortion or, or these kinds of, of, of issues.
0: You know, I'm struck, as you recant the history here, that um, the history, and you sort of touched on it earlier, that much of what you say we are seeing right now in, in, in the uh, candidacy of Donald Trump, we have a number of, uh, uh, of white voters that are feeling the same, the same way now as with the advent of um, the Southern strategy going back to 64 and going forward.
2: Right so so Trump does definitely um uh, appeal to um a, a, a nativist a kind of a, a culturally conservative uh, element that has been you know consistent in the in the Republican party in the modern era and um a lot of that is is based in the south but a lot of it's based you know not just in the south and um um but it's it's that core of of um of 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 reactionary voters that has been part of the the Republican you know coalition, um, you know whether whether you trace it back to uh, Dixiecrats or whether you trace it back to uh, you know supporters of Joseph McCarthy and, and this kind of thing. I mean there, that's a that's been a strain within the Republican Party uh, in the modern era.
0: And, and just on that last note, I mean, but but nativism to some degree has. Big, big part of our politics and in our history has it not? With oh,
2: absolutely. yeah, absolutely. I mean, every, you know, every wave of, of uh, historic, uh, wave of of immigration to this country, has been accompanied by, fierce forces of political nativism that have resisted it. Whether that was in the eighteen fifties with the know Nothing parties of the eighteen fifties, or whether it was. Uh, around the turn of the 20th century in the second great wave of immigration where anti-immigrant politics uh, led to the revitalization in the 1920s of the Ku Klux Klan. And you see it today. I mean, anti-immigrant nativist politics have been around in our politics since the 1990s. uh, but they uh, have certainly reached uh, a new levels with uh, Trump's successful candidacy in
0: 2016. Now, go, I want to touch back on the piece that you wrote in the New York Times recently. Um, you seem to suggest that we might be witnessing a realignment. Uh, why, why do you say that?
2: Well, let me just preface these remarks by saying that I'm a historian, and so I'm much better at saying, at looking at things right. that have happened than at things that might happen um uh, so all of my comments about future developments are speculative, and I take off my expert hat as a historian and put on my regular hat as a citizen and just try to look at you know read the tea leaves as it were. but it is striking that uh, the way in which um, this historic uh, successful coalition that the Republican Party has put together between uh, kind of You know, kind of socially moderate, economic conservatives, business-oriented conservatives in the Republican Party. You know, supporters of the free market, and the kind of cultural traditionalists, um, uh, verging on uh, protectionist, nativist type sensibilities that you see welling up in the in the. uh, Trump candidacy. And you know, we forget that those are two elements that don't naturally go together. That part of the success of the modern conservative movement, the modern Republican Party is to be able to bring these two elements together and get them voting and working together in the same way. Um, but it's not inevitable that they will that they haven't always been together and they won't always necessarily stay together. Uh, and so in that sense, you could begin to see um, a kind of splintering of this uh, this this coalition that has represented modern republicanism since roughly the 1960s, 50s and 60s. And um, it may well be that, that that's the case. We don't know yet, but uh, one begins to see uh, some suggestions of it.
0: Well, would you attribute some of the... the- fracturing due to the fact that um, we've had well documented uh, changes in, the, in our demographics um, and, or there are there other factors because you just it just seems like in the recent presidential elections as you stated earlier there aren't the votes that there once were in the electoral college with that type of coalition
2: right that's right America's becoming a more diverse uh, open kind of society and, and for people who uh, who who feel like they're being left out of the economy for people who feel like their, their, their culture and their ways of life are being left behind. Um, uh, In some sense, that's true. They are being left behind. And, um, and so the, the, the challenge for the Republican party is how to build a kind of more open, progressive, forward-looking kind of conservatism that can embrace the kind of optimism of, Market capitalism has always been a part of the Republican constituency, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and that can move forward from there. I don't know, you know, how does the Republican Party put the pieces back together after 2016? There's not, the, the path is not immediately obvious. I mean, there are some people who would say, well, this is, 2016 is just an anomaly. Donald Trump, um, the fact that he won the nomination, things will revert back to normal. Um, in, in 2020. Maybe, maybe not. Someone's still going to have to run in Republican uh, primaries and and appeal and win the support of those Tea Party Trump supporters that, that don't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, and so to what degree they will remain an essential part of any Republican party moving forward, it raises the question of how the GOP can put together um a kind of coalition of folks that will get them to uh, the votes they need to win uh, the Electoral College.
0: Well, you seem to suggest what what was tantamount to um, an irony of sorts in that I could see if the Republican Party were to do some of those things you suggested— they would then, in effect, be doing the very same thing that many people, say, left the Democratic Party or are frustrated now in that um, that feeling of being left behind would just be exasperated internally.
2: Right. So, I mean, you know, parties are always are, are live, organic things. They are changing over time as they're <laughs> trying to, desperately to get to, you know, 51 percent in the elections that they are running candidates in. And and I think we're in a process in which the Republican Party is feeling some of those tensions, the same tensions that, that maybe the Democratic Party was feeling in the 1950s and 60s with its, its traditional support among, uh, you know, segregationist white Southerners. Um, and so it, it remains to be seen what will happen uh, as we go forward.
0: Through your lens as a historian, because— um these things, maybe not specifically, but certainly in a macro context, are cyclical. Um, could, we, could we be on the verge of witnessing, say, more competitive states? Um, uh, and, and, and would those competitive states just be in the South, or could we be seeing more competitive states nationwide?
2: Well, I think, yeah, we're already seeing this election cycle states that are— and many of them are in the South because the South are the states that were most— you know, solidly Republican um, states like South Carolina and Georgia um, that are uh, that are seeming to, to be competitive uh, in ways that they have not been before. You know, I'm a resident of Georgia, and Democrats in Georgia have been talking for several election cycles now of how demographics are on their side. The state is becoming more diverse. The state is becoming younger. It's uh, you know, moving in ways that are going to affect the the Democratic Party in positive ways. the the problem with that is that demographics by nature move slowly. those changes take place very slowly over time. Uh, we may be seeing an acceleration of that trend by the fact that uh, of these internal rifts that are happening within the Republican Party. we don't know yet, but uh, but you know polls seems to suggest something like that is happening.
0: I, I don't know if you're from uh, familiar with, but my good friend Jim Hightower has been telling me. That Texas has a a purple underbelly, and I'm like Jim, it still looks red to me. I mean, <laughs> yeah. He's convinced that it's no. He says no, it's purple, Byron. We just gotta we just gotta get them out. But if people don't vote, it's still purple, right? I mean, it's still red if they don't vote.
2: Right, right, and and of course, turnout is going to be key for the Democrats, as it is every uh, election uh, in getting out their core supports supporters among the African American community. Among the Hispanic American community as well in Texas, um, you know, if, if if the Republicans continue to, uh, you know, nominate candidates um, who are so you know loathsome to communities of uh, to minority communities, then yes, Texas, I could imagine Texas becoming purple as well.
0: Yeah. So you're in Georgia. I, I believe that race is in within the margin of error. I believe that um, Arizona. Um, is also within the margin of error, um, and here in North Carolina, that's, that race is uh, within the margin of error, cleaned up a couple points. So, um, I mean, these are things that maybe what two election cycles ago we wouldn't even thought possible.
2: Yeah, although North Carolina has been competitive in recent years, but certainly true with uh, you know Obama having won North Carolina in 2008. But it's certainly true about Arizona and Georgia. And I think arizona is is the same story that we talk about in texas is is the story in arizona with donald trump's uh with his statements about Mexican immigrants and about immigration uh it makes it enormously difficult for him and for other republicans john McCain, you know clearly among them too uh to be successful in a state like arizona with such a large hispanic population
0: but but isn't that part isn't that in part you have a, you have these growing uh say hispanic uh, communities, but it's also—is it also attributed to the fact that with that growing community, you have more and more people who know, let's say, you know, say white residents of Arizona who know uh, uh, more and more Hispanics, and therefore, when they hear these type of comments, they're also insulted by them.
2: Well, I think there's always been moderate Republicans who don't like, you know, who who don't think of themselves as being prejudiced people, and who aren't probably prejudiced. I mean, who aren't prejudiced people, you know, undoubtedly. And when they say the candidate of their, of their party, who's saying you know, blatantly racist, divisive things, they don't want to support that candidate. That's not a candidate who represents you know, moderate Republicanism. And that's absolutely true. And, and that's, that was true of Republicans. It's true of Republicans in 2016. It was true of Republicans in 1964. You know there were, there were plenty of Republicans who were uh, upset by Barry Goldwater by his vote against the Civil Rights Act, by his, by his hard-line anti-communism, but semi-bellicose language in, in talking about the Cold War, relations to the Soviet Union. And, um, and that was a real concern for Republicans in 1964 that would moderate uh, Republicans support Goldwater. Um, you know, and, and Goldwater lost that election by what at the time was the largest uh, largest margin in American presidential history.
0: Yeah. As uh, 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 columnist George Will like to say that uh, Goldwater lost the battle, but um, Reagan won the war. That's how George Will frames that. And so times, yeah. times may be a changing. Professor uh, Joseph Crespino of Emory University, I want to thank you, sir, for being on the public morality today.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being with you. Thank you, sir.
0: That was Professor Joseph Crespino. Coming up, my closing remarks. Now for my closing remarks. Fifteen years ago, September 11th, 2001, made an unwarranted intrusion to the annals of American history alongside December 7th, 1941 and November 22nd, 1963 as dates representative of incomprehensible evil. Like the attack on Pearl Harbor and the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, the president attacks in New York, Washington and the plane crash in Pennsylvania have forever removed this generation from the perceived Teflon coating of immunity against such absurdity. In the aftermath of the 9-11 tragedies, we also bore witness to America at its best. For a brief moment, there was a unity of spirit that dominated the American ethos. Petty politics were put to the side for something larger, our myopic lens widened, allowing us to see the humanity in others more clearly. We learned of unsung heroes, some making the ultimate sacrifice. This feeling reached its apex in Yankee Stadium when on October 30th, 2001, before Game 3 of the World Series, President George W. Bush, standing 60 feet 6 inches from home plate, hurled a strike to the catcher, transforming the ceremonial first pitch into a symbolism for American resolve. We vowed never to forget 9-11, and in many respects we have not, but the underlying fear resulting from that ill-fated day rendered America vulnerable in a manner perhaps not duplicated in its history. Unlike Pearl Harbor, when some Americans witnessed newsreels in the aftermath, or the JFK assassination footage taken by Abraham Zapruder, which was not made public until 1975, America saw the jets going to the World Trade Center tower live. The power of that image allowed us to conveniently place an asterisk on September 11, 2001, denoting the date where we would be willing to make an exception to the constitutional values that had previously held the nation together for 213 years. It was a time when the Patriot Act made sense to majorities in Congress and the nation at large, in spite of protestations to its dangers. The downside was rationalized in that only those with something to hide should worry about the unprecedented invasion of privacy that is shielded by the Fourth Amendment's protection of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. The fear of another terrorist attack made the risk of any potential government overreach a Faustian bargain worth taking. Since the nation decided to embark on this ill-advised adventure, it has taken us down a rabbit hole that we're still seeking to climb our way out. Illegal immigration became transmuted into something directly linked to 9-11. Despite having nothing to do with the terrorist attacks, Individuals from Mexico and Latin America were viewed as a visceral threat to American safety even though the culprits came here legally. And then there was Iraq, the foreign policy venture that placed the term weapons of mass destruction into the lexicon of a country already drowning in fear. This represented a dark chapter in our history where certainty became the coin of the realm and questions to the contrary were bordering on treason. The majority saw the minority opinion as an irritant. Unworthy of acknowledgement rather than a combative ally, if nothing else, serving as the best opportunity against succumbing to the toxins of megalomania. Our elected leadership and their surrogates failed us. Many Democrats in Congress, more concerned with re-election, retreated into the cowardice of self-preservation. The run-up to the war in Iraq was marred by a Congress that spent more time engaging in trivialities than deliberating if Iraq presented the type of threat that warranted a preemptive strike. With high approval ratings under the backdrop of the 9-11 tragedies, America took its eye off the perpetrators harboring refuge in Afghanistan in pursuit of spreading democracy in the Middle East. The result was a destabilization of the region and a world that is left safe today. So on this 15th anniversary of 9-11, let us never forget the innocent lives that were lost that day, the families whose lives were permanently altered, and the valor that service units displayed willing to risk their lives to save others. But let us also remember it was a moment where fear trumped our values. And to that latter point, let us be resolved to say, never again. For that is the only way to pursue that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.